Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our champion, our savior, our strong redeemer. We come to you in his name because that's our power, that's our authority, that's our opening into the presence of the Almighty. We come in his name asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We come in his name asking that you're glorified and that your church is strengthened and that your kingdom family is multiplied all the more beyond measure. We can't do that. We are mere men and women and we have no power and we ask that you would do that. That you would fill us, dear God, that we may have understanding, that we may have transformation of thought. We ask that you would fill us in order that we may be compliant and that we may obey. May all the glory go to you because you're the one who has to do whatever it is that you command us to do. You have to do it through us. And we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit and we say, have thine own way, Lord God Almighty. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. The um, reading of the Old Testament, so much of it as I read through it, is all about God recording names. And he talks about so-and-so begat so-and-so, but there's so much more than that within those names of lists that God records, he also talks about those who did something significant. And uh, you may recall, for instance, as he was going through one set of genealogy in the Old Testament, he talked about Jabez. And he just stopped and he just talked about the significance of Jabez's life. But as we go through the list, we notice something else that in my opinion is quite sad. And that is with most of the names, there's no commentary because there was nothing that was significant about most of the individuals within the genealogy. The sad reality is most of God's people live and die without any evidence in their lives that would suggest that God was living through them. I sometimes look at in cemeteries the unmarked graves. And there are so many people who have lived and who have died and uh, with so many of those individuals there was nobody who said this is a grave worth remembering. This is a life worth celebrating. And there is no marker, there is no headstone, there is nothing that would guide a person back to that life that was lived. And oftentimes, it was a life of zero significance. 
I don't think that God wants you to just live and work and feed yourself and retire and coast into the golden years and then into eternity without leaving a mark on this world. Yet so many, that's how they die. They die and the church doesn't have to make any adjustment after they're gone because their contribution was so small. Nothing is missed. Nothing has to be picked up. There is no panic. They're just gone. And truth be told, they were never really there. In Matthew chapter 17, if you would join me there one more time. Matthew chapter 17, you remember this passage. This is the passage where we have the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, where he was changed in bodily form to where his Shekinah glory could be seen by his disciples. In Matthew chapter 17, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And we'll stop right there for the reading, but we'll cover the rest of the passage. Thank you for standing with me to another reading of the words of our great God and King. And so it says, after six days. And so Jesus had given this sermon six days earlier where he said, there are some of you who are standing here, you will not see death, until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And now it's six days later, and he takes this trek up the mountain, this retreat, so to speak, up the mountain. And, and, and only three people have the privilege of being able to go with him. And so, woo, we must be somebody because all of the other nine and the other 70 disciples that he chose, none of them are here. It's just Jesus and us three. Don't have to put up with Judas and, and doubting Thomas and the others. It's just Jesus and us three. And so he takes them up this high mountain by themselves and this feels like it's special treatment and there is this wonderful view of the scenery that is down below, whether they could see the valley or whether they could see the Mediterranean. We don't really know because we're not sure which mountain it was. But th they're here and, and, and the air is fresh and the birds are singing and there's no mess and there is no drama and there are no problems up here. It's just serene, and it's peaceful, and uh, 
the best part of it all, they are totally disconnected from the world and all its problems. And uh, all that I have to focus on is me. Just enjoy the moment. And uh, if that wasn't enough, it says in verse number two that there was an added surprise, an additional delight. It says in verse number two, there he was transfigured before them. Nobody else got to see this. This had never happened before. He was transfigured before them from his earthly appearance to his heavenly appearance. It says in verse number two, his face shone like the sun. You could not look him in the face because his face was so bright. And his clothes became as white as the light. Man, what a place to be. What a view this is. What an experience. This is the ultimate mountaintop experience. You talk about a worshipful experience. This is it. It doesn't get any better than that, except that it does. Because in verse number three, here comes something else. In verse number three, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And so the icing on the cake is that these Old Testament saints appear out of nowhere. And I don't know what was going through their minds, but perhaps they were thinking, who's going to be next? Is it going to be Enoch? Is it going to be Nehemiah? Is Job going to come? Maybe King David is going to show up on this mountain. And they are just enjoying this wonderful moment. There's Jesus, and there are the saints from the Old Testament. And Peter said, <laughs> hang on a second, I got to say something. And so in verse number four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here and not there. It is good for us to be here. And then he says in verse number four, if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one, of course, for Elijah. This is where we ought to be. And uh, we ought to make this a permanent arrangement. I will build tabernacles, one for each of you. What's Peter thinking about? Rather than dealing with this world down below, politics and crime and hate speech and all this other stuff, rather than dealing with all of the everyday stuff of life, wouldn't it be nice if we could just hang out up here? 
We can have our own private, isolated community where it's just us. We can just enjoy ourselves. We have a place to worship where our co-workers don't see us lifting our hands to Jesus. We have a place where we can go and uh, our unsaved friends don't get to see the other side of us. You know, there's that side where we don't want our cool friends to see. And up here, it's just us. And we can just enjoy ourselves. But there's something else that is going on in this verse. Did you notice that there are six people on the mountain? There is Jesus, there is Moses, there is Elijah, there is James, there is John, there is Peter. There are six people who are on the mountain, but did you notice how many shelters are mentioned? Only three. Why is it that there are only three shelters that are mentioned when there are six people who are here? Where is Peter going to stay? Where is James going to stay? Where is John going to stay? Well, I think what Peter had in mind is that <laughs> we're just going to stay as long as we want to. And then when we get enough of the mountaintop experience, we'll go back down. Oh, but isn't that what most Christians do? Got one foot in the kingdom, and I got one foot in the world. On Sunday, I'm a kingdom individual. But when it comes through Monday and through all the way through Saturday, I got my foot in the world. And there are so many Christians who, when they're away from Sunday, they really don't have much to do with God. You look at their prayer life through the week, you look at their Bible reading through the week, you look at their witnessing, and you look at these teachers who teach Sunday school, and you look for them to teach in their own homes, and you just don't find that kind of stuff away from church. It's like we come here for the mountaintop experience, and then we go back to our real lives. I got to ask you a serious question. Which one is the real you? Because one of you is a fake. Either you're in the kingdom or you're in the world. And the question is, which one is the real you? You know what the thought is behind this? The reason they only need three tabernacles is because they're not going to take Jesus with them. When they go out to the sick, the lame, the demon-possessed, the unsaved, the depressed, the oppressed, when they go back to their regular lives and have to be around their friends who are looking for answers. They are not taking Jesus with them. They are leaving him here with Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop. We're going to leave Jesus and his saints at the church until we come back again.
is their private savior. And they're not going to share him with the rest of the world. That's where the church is. That's where Christians are living. And that's the reason that politics and everything else is so messed up because we have this private Jesus and we don't want to connect him with our politics and with our lifestyles and with our friends and with the rest of the world. They're going to leave him right there until they're ready for their next mountaintop experience. We're going to go back down and yeah, life hurts, life stinks, and we're going to get sick, and we're going to get tired, and then when we don't have anywhere else to turn, <laughs> we'll be back, and we'll worship, and we'll, we'll, we'll want to be refreshed, and we'll want to pray, and we'll want to get our prayers answered, and we'll want to have this amazing grace experience. We want to feel like we are forgiven and connected with heaven, and that God is on our side, and so the world will beat up on us a little bit, and then we'll come back. And then we'll live again. And we'll live Jesus and his saints right here. You know what they're wanting? Jesus, you're going to be our drug. And whenever we need a fix... We'll be back. There was a socialist that lived in the 19th century. His name was Karl Marx. And he said, uh, religion is the opium of the people. It's just their high. Maybe he wasn't too far off. Jesus, good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. It's a wonderful idea. And in verse number five, while he was still speaking, this bright cloud comes out of nowhere, and it just envelops them. And they're just in the midst of this bright cloud, and they have no idea what's going on. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so God just rudely, just, he just, in the, mid, in the middle of Peter's sentence, he just comes in and is like him saying, shut up, hush your mouth. You need to listen to Jesus. And do you know that God was getting them straight when he said this, that with him, I am well pleased. These guys are <laughs> strutting their stuff and pulling their jackets together, and they're thinking, uh, you know, it's only three of us up here. We are it. We are like the Trinity right below Jesus. How did they get picked? You got Peter, the one who denied him, and he ran away like the other disciples when Jesus was arrested. 
You got James and John who wanted to call down fire and burn up the whole city of Samaria. How did these three knuckleheads get to be picked? How is it that they're the ones who are the guys? They don't realize it. But they got close to Jesus the same way that we do, and it was just Jesus having pity on these three guys. They are no bodies. Peter was saying it really would be good if we could just stay here. Us four, no more. It would be wonderful if we could just isolate ourselves from here and just enjoy the blessing of God. And God obviously is bothered by the whole idea. God has no tolerance for his people wanting to isolate themselves from the world. Maybe because we are too busy and we don't have time. Maybe it's because we are better than they are. Maybe it's because we're so holy and they're so unacceptable. Whatever the reason is, God has no tolerance for us wanting to separate and isolate ourselves from the world. Some people hear that and they go, cool, you just gave me a license to hang out with the sinners and just do my thing. You just gave me the license to fit in with the world and that's what I'm going to do. There are some Christians who don't spend enough time with unbelievers. There are other Christians, they spend too much time with unbelievers. You know why? Because any time you're spending time with an unbeliever and they're doing the influencing instead of you, that's too much time. When we spend time with the unbelievers, that's what God wants us to do, but he wants us to do it in the right way. And that is, we're there to influence them. Not the other way around. I usually pray over my meal, but when I'm with the unbeliever, I don't. Who is influencing who? Who's changing who in that scenario? I usually act a certain way. But when I'm with the people who act like rebels, then I act a little bit different. Who's influencing who? They don't want to. They don't want to serve anybody. They don't want to serve the kingdom. They just want to have a hallelujah good time. 
just whenever they wanted to. They didn't want to serve anybody. They just wanted to have a little gathering, a little church service. They're having this wonderful mountaintop experience. But here's what they're missing. No matter how wonderful your gathering is, if it's not connected to you serving, if this is not the thing that moves you to do something for the king, it's all in vain. It's got to be connected to work in the valley. So you all know that I'm a big football guy, right? <laughs> okay, I admit. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about football, and I just don't care. That's why I don't know. So when I talk football, it's because I Googled something, right? So I know who the leading NFL players are. It's out of the Kansas City Chiefs or the Seattle Seahawks, right? No? I got that wrong, too? <laughs> okay. Because Google ain't always right. So, so here's my question. Those winning teams, these guys who really know how to play football, my question is, how many of those points they scored, did they score inside the huddle? Not a one. The huddle is not the game. They get together, they call plays, and they talk strategy, but the huddle is not the game. And that's what has happened to, to, to so many Christians. They huddle together on Sunday and we get encouragement and we get the word of God and we get our marching orders that we're to live right and love right, that we're to serve and we're to reach the lost. We get our marching orders and then we go back to the bench and we sit down. They don't want to serve. Peter and James and John, they're like many in our day. They just want to huddle. We want to meet with our friends and we want to get a few moments of rest. And uh, after church, after the huddle is over, we're done until it's time to huddle again. If all you do is worship, you don't worship. Let's stay here. And this big, booming voice just interrupts. And it says in verse number six, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. God terrified them. 
And I just wish that God would do that all over again. And perhaps this corona is a part of it, that we're having to go back to God and, and fear him again and depend on him again for our very lives. Maybe that's why there are so many things that go wrong in our lives, and maybe that's why it's always something, and, and it's just one thing after the other. Maybe because we've lost our fear of God. Maybe we're not concerned about God anymore. I know what God said, but... And maybe we're just not afraid of God anymore. Oh, he's going to bless me no matter what. I listened to Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen told me that I can do what I want. And it's not Joel Osteen. There are preachers and pastors and Sunday school teachers all over the place that will tell you that God is kind of like a warm, fuzzy puppy. Somebody to keep you company and you can tell him what you want and he'll do it for you and he's not going to demand anything of you. You got the wrong God. Because the God of the Bible says you must serve Maybe we don't take God seriously anymore. There's always the invitation to serve. There's always the invitation to do something. Picture this. I have no idea who the quarterback is for the Chiefs. But he calls the group into a huddle and everybody comes around and he says to this guy, Hey, you go long, and you, you go short, and you need you to make sure that this big guy that's pressing on me, that you block him, and he's just giving them the strategy and calling the play and all that, and the players are talking back to him, and the guy who's supposed to go long says, I'm tired. And the guy who's supposed to go short, I don't want to run at all. And the guy who is on the line, I don't feel like blocking. And, and, and player after player after player has a reason not to do what he is asking them to do. And uh, the other guy just says, oh, that's dumb. It doesn't matter what the reason is. As long as the team isn't running the plays and aligned and together and committed, it doesn't matter what the excuse is. You get the same result, nothing. The um, five wins from the Seattle Seahawks, man, that record will go to the toilet in nothing flat if all the players just say no. What does Jesus say in verse number seven? But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. 
They better be glad Jesus was there. They better be glad the intercessor was there. Because he is the one who stands between a wrathful God and rebellious men. You better be glad that Jesus is praying for you according to the book of Hebrews. He ever lives to make intercession for you when you are rebellious, when you are not compliant, when you are filled with pride. No matter what it is, he's standing between you and God. But he's only going to stand between you and God until judgment day. He says, get up. Time to go back to the muck and mire of life. It's time to do the hard stuff, guys. We ought to be able to come here on a Sunday and huddle up. Then the quarterback ought to be able to say, hey, Let's do this to reach the community because God has called us to engage. Let's do a food pantry. Let's do a clothing pantry. Let's do this. Let's do that. And God's people ought to work together to engage with the community and be a light and be salt and impact this community. Let's go. And uh, in verse number eight, they looked around. And they were looking for Moses and Elijah and the bright cloud. And uh, there was nobody but Jesus. I think there's a message in that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just see nobody but Jesus. We look around and we see people who have hurt us and it gives us an attitude. We look around and we see others who are not working and it encourages us to not work. But if we could just see Jesus, the perfect one, the one who died for us, the, the, the strong redeemer, if we could just see him and filter out everybody else. We look at others who are in sin, and we go, well, it must not be that bad, and it encourages us to be in sin. And God says, you three, I'm leaving you with one picture, with one thing, and if you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to him. Forget the people who have let you down, disappointed you, hurted you, betrayed you, stabbed you in the back. Forget those people. Forget those people around who aren't working, who aren't matching your effort. Forget them and just look at what Jesus did. Use him as your role model, as your example, as your inspiration. Takes them down the mountain into the valley where there are these people and with every person 
there's a different problem. Every person who walks through the doors of this church has got a different set of problems. We're surrounded by problems. And there is no shortage of need. And there is no shortage of supply if you want to work in the valley. So many of God's people are not serving. Their lives have never spoken of sacrifice. They've done a little here, a little there, but sacrifice? Real hard work for the kingdom? Most of God's people have never experienced that. Most of God's people have never yet obeyed God. You know why? Because we don't have our minds right. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul said, you know what God needs? He needs you to stop conforming to the world and the way that you do that is by your minds being transformed to where you see things differently, to where you think about things in a whole different light. What he said to them in Romans chapter 12 is that God has had mercy on you. Did you know that every person who is born, when you are born, you are falling, falling, falling straight into the eternal flames of hell? And if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus had mercy on you. He reached out his hand and he caught you he saved you from your sin and darkness and eternal wrath of God. And what he says in Romans chapter 12, when God has had that kind of mercy on you, you ought to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Did you know that most of us, he's not asking you to die for him. He's asked others to die for him. But most of us who are here, he's not asking us to die for him, but he is asking us live for him. Make our lives not a sacrificial death. Make our lives a living sacrifice. That's what he wants from us. He wants our lives to be sacrificial. Sacrifices. Where we're sacrificing for him. How do you know when you're sacrificing? You know when you're sacrificing because it's costing you something big. Some of us have never given sacrificially. We've given a tithe, and some of us haven't even done that faithfully. A tithe is not a sacrifice. Some of us haven't sacrificed our time. We haven't had to adjust our schedules to serve God. There's no sacrifice of our time. Some of us haven't sacrificed our energy. We've never been truly tired and worn out because we were serving God. We just get worn out on other stuff and tired from other stuff. We've never been tired from serving God. 
He says to those people in the book of Romans, he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And that is common among the people who profess to be the people of God. There are some who think more highly of themselves than they ought. There are some people who are thinking about themselves. I am surely one of those people who is on their way to heaven. And God would say, no, you're not. You never surrendered your life to Christ. Not really. You professed him. You joined church. You attend church. But really committing your life to Christ like it's a blank check you can do with it whatever you want most of us have full ownership of our lives and we're making every decision there are people who are among the people of God and they say man I am wise I have it going on I'm wise no, nah, you're not. You're just puffed up. Just conceited. And there are people who are among the people of God and they say, you know, I'm not a babe in Christ anymore. I've matured. I've grown up. You sure? Because people who are mature in the faith, they're useful, useful, useful to the kingdom of God. Real men, they refuse to be treated like children and carry the load of a child. Real men are movers and shakers. Why is he telling the Romans all that? He said, because you're the body of Christ. He said, look at your own body. You have many members, but it's all one body. So who is it that is the body of Christ, the physical presence of Christ in this world? He says, that's you. So who are his hands? Who are his feet? Who's his mouth? He says, that's you. Who is he trying to use when we're not at church? That's you. He said, look at your own body. Can you think of any part of your body where you're okay? If it only works on Sunday? Can you think of any part of your body where you don't need it to show up every day, all day long? We're supposed to be his body. Our lives being lived for him.
There are some jobs Christians won't take. But they can serve Christ better if they don't. There are some outfits Christians won't wear because it doesn't represent being committed to Christ. Places they won't go, things they won't do. And it's not just about the things we won't do. Those who are committed to Christ, they're going to serve him. And they're going to serve him well. Let's pray. We do ask, dear God, that you would instill your word into our hearts. We got to go home soon. We got to give an account to God soon. And he's still recording genealogies, and he's still recording those who have done things for him, things that are significant, things that make a difference, things that show our worship is real. We've got to stand before you, and we've got to give an account to you. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to live in such a way that you won't be ashamed. The Bible says that you are ashamed of some of your people. You're embarrassed that your child would do that. You're embarrassed that your child would be that lazy. You're embarrassed that your child would be that cold that they won't share the gospel. They will let people instead go straight to hell because it's awkward. I pray that you would instill your word in our hearts and that you would own everything about us, our lives, our vote, our jobs, our money, our schedules. Help us, dear God, to really live for you. Our nation is in trouble because of how uncaring, how unconcerned your church people are. We're not being salt. We're not being light. We're just letting the world go. And I pray that you would help us to be different. In Jesus' name, amen.